I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, Nothing Burdensome. Most of us feel we want to, at least to some extent, organize our lives, and we feel as if there are aspects of Jesus' lifestyle that we're missing and missing out on, but we're not quite sure how to change that. Um, Thursday morning of this week, just a few days ago, I began my time of prayer with this little book of uh, daily Lenten reflections that are accompanied by corresponding paintings. We were selling them in our bookstore for the last couple weeks. And Thursday, if you have this thing, it was Rembrandt's famous The Return of the Prodigal Son. And Sister Wendy Beckett, who authored the reflections in the book, talked about the way that the wayward son in the story, and I quote, cared nothing for his father or his adult responsibilities while the money lasted. And that really struck me. Now, I don't know how many times I've read and reflected on that story. It's one of my favorites in all the gospel stories. But I tend to focus on the wayward son's eventual contrition and, of course, the father's lavish forgiveness. But in Jesus' story, the son must first be reduced to zero. He's poor and starving before he finally thinks of the father that he spurned. And it happens in every episode of those intervention-themed shows. I don't know if there's more than one of these things, but I remember the one, people talking about rock-bottom moments, uh, during which they hope and pray that loved ones squandering their lives, hopelessly spinning their wheels in the mire of some addiction, will finally realize that things don't have to be this way, where they're reduced to nothing, and they finally want to change. And then I thought about us. All of us go through very hard things in life, but many of us will probably not have stereotypical rock-bottom moments anyway, at least not like the ones that we see on television. And I, hope, I hope we don't anyway. We know terrible pain and tragedy, but a lot of you probably won't make such obvious flaming wreckage of your lives that it necessitates like television-worthy intervention. I hope none of you do anyway. But then that got me thinking, how do we change? All of us need to change, but the normalcy of our lives, for better or for worse, does not lend itself to such desperate configurations that we want change more than we fear it. That's a rock-bottom moment. For many of us, change is kind of like a dangling carrot. We know that it's there and that it looks pretty nice, but it's kind of out of reach, or is it? I don't know. I'm too tired to check. You read Jesus' promises, particularly of rest for your souls, and you think, man, that sounds really nice. Oh, maybe at some point. Or we think, that would be really good, but I don't really have time for that kind of thing in my life at the moment. And so we keep sleeping in, or we start the next episode, or we go on scrolling. But what if... For us, change won't come when we haul ourselves out of the rock-bottom debris of a shattered life, but instead, change comes by the thoughtful, gradual implementation of different things. It's a long-term overall, but one that occurs in stages and that changes if need be. When you read about Jesus, you start to ask yourself questions. Try it. Read through those gospel stories and see what kind of questions come to mind. You imagine Jesus in these fantastic scenarios, scenes from a movie you've never seen. Not really. I'm still waiting on that movie. It'd be great. And after you read them later, when you're thinking about your own life, you remember, I'm supposed to be the same way as this guy 
like Jesus. And it's not just like Jesus' incredible wisdom and intelligence. It's honestly not even just the miracles. It's this kind of stuff. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. Jesus, at a specific time and place in his life, upon the Spirit's leading, decided to go into the wilderness all by himself for 40 days, which is crazy enough, but he fasted while he was doing it. How did he ever come to such a decision? The Spirit led him, the story says. Okay, but how did he experience that leading? What does that mean that the Spirit led him? Did he have a sudden revelation? Was it subtle? How did he know that that's what he was supposed to do? Why this time and why those things? If God asked you to do the exact same thing, what would it sound like? And how would you know that you heard it? The story paints a picture of convinced intentionality. It's not random. It's not spontaneous at all. It's a deliberate part of Jesus's life and ministry. Jesus didn't, that we know of, do the whole 40 days of fasting thing over and over again. Other things he did over and over again. Remember stuff like this? The news about him spread all the more, so the crowd of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus, what word? Often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Okay, so that kind of thing he did a lot, often, even in small, rhythmic, recurring rhythms. In fact, he did all the stuff that we, as Christians, as Jesus' disciples, already know should make up the ordinary rhythm of our lives, but if we're honest, sometimes they don't. Jesus devoted his life to community relationships. He shared the gospel. He healed people. He drove out demons. He studied and meditated on the scriptures, memorized them. He attended synagogue. And when he was at synagogue, he participated. He wasn't just a passive observer. You see, when we read the biographies of Jesus's life, they often play to kind of the modern reading sensibility, like a series of detached scenes. He's there, then he's here, and then he's there. And we can forget that Jesus didn't just kind of wander haphazardly from one unplanned event to another as if life happened to Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He chose when to pray. He chose when to study, when to practice solitude or fasting or gratitude. He was led by the Spirit, and he practiced the kinds of things that allowed him to be led by the Spirit in the first place. He made space for community. He made space for his work, for his rest. He made deliberate decisions that enabled him to live simply or to prioritize certain relationships in his life, or to be alone and to be with other people. His life was marked by spiritual specificity, intentionality, and spiritual rhythms. And spiritual rhythms aren't about piety, meaning they're not about religious behavior for religious behavior's sake. Really, life itself is already a network of rhythms. Yours is already tonight. We eat, we work, we sleep, and between the staples, we voluntarily devote ourselves to hobbies or interests or obligations that ask of us our time and attention, and those rhythms give shape to the way that we think and the way that we talk and the way that we behave, and we involuntarily give our time and attention to other not-so-great things, and these other not-so-great things we do and dwell on, they also change the way that we think and the way that we talk and the way that we behave. The fitness enthusiast, for example, goes to the gym or to a class, and the more that they get into it, the enthusiasm colors their conversation. Interest looks for itself and others so that it can be shared, and it changes the way you eat and drink, and so it changes the way you shop. Time spent working out 
is time you can't spend on something else, so you have to say no to other things that would overlap or occupy the time and space that you've already devoted to working out. Music lovers, they share recommendations with one another. They listen to new albums when others might listen to, say, podcasts instead. They choose one thing instead of another. Movie lovers go to the movies on their open evening. My wife, Abby, uh, read eight books in January. She's already finished another eight in February, and she's got kind of this library stack on her side of the bed that goes like this and then goes back up and then goes like this. And recently, she was having a conversation with someone that said, oh my God, how, do you have, how in the world do you have time to read more than two books a week? Uh, but really, both people have the same amount of time in a day. And Abby shrugged, and knowing this person's interests and hobbies, said, I guess it's because I don't watch any TV. And that wasn't a brag. The other person nodded. They do watch a lot of TV. That's what they like to spend their uh, kind of entertainment pastime on. So that made sense. The hours that they dedicated to binging a new miniseries, Abby had spent on novels instead. The fitness enthusiast priorities um, and the, the way that they dedicate their time changes them. Maybe for the better. Maybe they become more physically and mentally and emotionally healthy, more disciplined, or maybe they get narcissistic or self-righteous, or maybe they even damage their self-perception with fretful obsession about their fitness. Maybe the movie and music lovers' hearts and minds are being enriched by their steady diet of the arts, or maybe they're using entertainment to escape reality. Either way, they are changing over time by the way they spend their time. Interests, practices, and habits transform the way that we think and talk and behave whether we want them to or not. Years ago, a team of our leaders rented a cabin in the woods and we spent the weekend talking about these things and where they would steer our church in the months and years ahead. And I remember specifically when one of our leaders said of herself and her family, we badly want to, and these were her exact words, organize our lives. And I thought, man, don't we all? Here's a story some of you understand, at least in the general sense. So this is a snapshot of, you know, a weekday. On a Monday morning, I get up around 5.30, I head outside to exercise, and I take a shower, I wake my family. Uh, Abby and I make the kids breakfast, and then we make and pack their lunches while constantly badgering two of them to get dressed while attending to the neediness of the toddler. And then I herd them into a car, drive them to school. I head to my office, work all day, meetings, reading, writing, planning, the whole thing. Then I head home in the afternoon, and I either start dinner or I hang out with my kids while Abby's cooking, and then we eat together as a family, and then I start cleaning crap up. And then you've got to corral kids through a bedtime routine, teeth brush, pajamas, homework, get the two-year-old in his crib, all that. And then Abby and I have a couple of hours to hang out before it's time to go to bed so I can get up early the next morning and do the same exact thing all over again. Where does anything else go exactly? And maybe your day is similar or dissimilar, or maybe it's even more jammed to the brim with responsibilities and obligations. I don't know. But really, all of us ask the question of where does anything else go? Because all of us are being distracted to death. A nonstop flow of information and digital noise, push notifications, calendar events, TV streaming, social media, friends, families, spouses, kids, an infinite and ever accessible buffet of distractions beyond the things we already do just to survive or pay bills or raise a family. Where does anything else go exactly? But the uncomfortable truth is that we all have the same amount of time, really. 24 hours in a day until we're dead. We all make 
certain decisions about how to spend that time until it's gone. It's why I always hate the phrase, I didn't have time. I think we should always say, I chose not to spend my time that way. I think that that would force us to think about stuff, you know? Look at it this way. Earlier, I described an average weekday in my own life, kids, breakfast, and work, and bedtime, blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't lying about any of that stuff. Those are all real components of my average weekday. But I described 24 hours and 30 seconds, so it didn't cover everything. I didn't say that when I get to my office, I read the scriptures and journal and pray and worship, and then I have monthly prayer rhythm for my kids based on what day of the week. I didn't say that, you know, at 2 p.m. my watch beeps and I stop to recenter and pray again. I didn't say that before bed we read the Bible with our kids and pray over them. I didn't talk about weekly rhythms of community and church and my monthly day of silence or solitude or my quarterly day of fasting. But these and more are also all rhythms that, to me, often already go into a life that feels crowded in the first place. All of these spiritual rhythms are not unlike those couple of hours that Abby and I have on most ordinary nights. That's our time. So after everyone goes to bed and there's a couple hours before we go to sleep, we talk or we read together or we watch a movie sometimes, be close to one another. The anchor point of the busy life that we share in this season is just a little bit of time to be together and relax. And we have other things like dates or outings or vacations to get us out of the busyness of the rhythm, but be together. Whatever happens in the chaos of life as we know it, as a couple, as a family, we'll be going through that together. So we always want to be moving toward one another, growing closer in intimacy and familiarity as the center of gravity in the chaos of life. That is the idea of spiritual disciplines in general. That whatever happens in the chaos of life, you're moving closer to God. That intimacy and familiarity with God is increasing, never decreasing, no matter what is going on around you. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Remain in me. Remain in me. Remain in me. The word translated as remain or in some of your Bibles, abide, is a, a Greek word, meno. It can be translated as stay united with me. In ancient Greek, you don't have italics or capital letters or underlining, so to emphasize something, you repeat it. And in this short little teaching, Jesus says, meno, or stay united with me, remain in me, 10 times. How do you stay united with Jesus? How do you remain in him? Nobody does it by accident. In fact, the standard gravitational pull of life in the world is actually away from Jesus. 
those screens and stories and stress all culminating day after day in the rapid fire succession of days and weeks and months that leave you at the sad end of some season where you realize that you're actually less like Jesus and you didn't realize how much time had passed while it was happening, that our finite energies and non-renewable resource of our lifetime has been given over to things like scrolling through a social media feed or to television or to sleeping in that the encroaching phantoms of cynicism or distraction or depression and dissatisfaction have drawn nearer down the expressway of our listlessness. And all the ways we intended to spiritually mature have failed to come to fruition because we have failed to pursue them at all. No one does it by accident, just as no one gets in shape by wanting to make time for exercise. But us, We think about the work it would take to carve out a gym routine, the unimaginable difficulty of giving up sugar or potato chips, or how far we'd have to go to experience the results that we badly want, and we find ourselves giving up on that which we need before we've ever actually set out to take hold of it. But what if one pried open their crowded calendar just a little and began to implement small things? a short jog on certain weekday mornings. And then when that became routine, less ice cream. And then when that became normal, maybe some dumbbells. Spiritual maturity is the ultimate black belt achievement that we deeply desire and yet constantly frustrate ourselves as we spin in circles of recurring defeats. Unless we learn a better way. Now, four years ago, After months of research and planning amongst the leadership of Van City, we decided to guide our church into an ancient concept called a rule of life. Then, after those months of preparation, we began this series, and partway into it, it was around, let's say, March of 2020, and then we learned that the world had been shut down. The conversation sort of changed immediately and for a while, and we've come back to the conversation of a rule of life here and there in the years that followed, but the intention back in 2020 and that intention Uh, and the intention in the weeks ahead is to walk with all of you as you build your own rule of life as well as an invitation to adopt a church-wide rule of life as well. We have um, some suggested reading for you guys in the back. One is called Crafting a Rule of Life. It's actually a super helpful um, practical guide to building out your rule of life one step at a time. That's something we're going to do throughout the series, but if you want some supplemental material that will walk you through all the details and more space that we have time to give in the series, that's a great resource. And then my friend um, John Mark Comer has a book called Practicing the Way that's also about following Jesus, spiritual disciplines, and a rule of life. Those are, will be on sale at the book counter after the gathering. And again, like we always say, we sell them at cost. We don't profit at all. We just love to give you guys good resources. Now, Please hear me when I say this. The idea when we talk about this thing called a rule of life is not to give you more work. It's not to give you another thing to do. It's not to confine you or restrict you. The idea is that we would have more freedom. Margaret Gunther, who's a wife and mother and Anglican priest, she says it well. She said, a good rule, meaning a rule of life, can set us free to be our true and best selves. It is a working document, a kind of spiritual budget, not carved in stone, but subject to regular review and revision. It should support us, but never constrict us. A rule of life is a dedicated set of practices and principles that 
organize according to daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual rhythms. The idea is to look at your own personality, your season of life, the person Jesus has asked you to be, the roles that you currently fulfill, and then to establish for yourself adaptable rhythms that will enable and empower you to live and thrive as a disciple of Jesus. Now, I've had a rule of life for years now. Some of it is the same as when I first wrote it down on paper. Other aspects have changed completely, but I've learned a few things about starting a rule of life, evolving a rule of life, or restarting a rule of life. And in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about how to write that rule, how to put it into practice. But before we do that, I want to help everyone relax at the outset with a few basic encouragements. The first is to start small. Getting amped up and writing out a rule of life with two dozen things that you're not already doing that require like major life upheaval is a great way to quickly break your rule of life. So the idea is that you start where you are, not where you want to be eventually, and then don't be discouraged by starting small. Honestly, taking on very small, realistic, even fun goals does move us forward in spiritual formation because we start to see what we're missing, that there's more, and we grow a little bit at a time. If spending one or two hours in prayer and reading every morning is where you would like to be eventually in your spiritual maturity, but presently you're spending about zero seconds every morning in prayer and, and reading scriptures, then just start with a few minutes. When you wake up, before you touch your phone, say hello to God, read a single psalm, sit in God's presence for just a minute or two. That is something that every single person in this room can do. And then later on, you might add more reading, or you might add more time, or you might add more disciplines of prayer or journaling or worship. But the idea is that you start small. And when you start, be specific. Writing abstract concepts like be generous or relax more won't really go that far in quantifiable outcomes. But if you write something like, I will give 10% of every paycheck to the church, or I will buy dinner for someone every single month, or I will have a Sabbath day of rest every single Friday, or I will turn off my phone for 24 hours once a week. Those kinds of things give you real practices that you can implement with specificity, and you know whether or not you're doing them. So be specific and plan on how you will put those specifics into practice. And then go for subtraction over addition. What I mean is don't just cram more stuff into an already bloated routine. The idea will be to take an honest look at how you're spending your time and to organize it wisely so that you prioritize what's best. So you'll probably have to change some bad habits to make space for good ones, or at the very least, reduce time spent on other things to create openings for your spiritual practices. So you might need to get up earlier, for example, which means you might need to go to bed earlier. Each new implementation requires an adjustment. Go for subtraction over addition. To do that, you'll need to keep in mind your season of life and your stage of apprenticeship. Meaning, you know, if you're 20-something and single, your rule will look very different than, say, an empty nester. So if you're raising three toddlers, your rule will look different than someone who has two teenagers. Or if you're brand new to Jesus, this is a great time to take on the most simplified basics. But if you've been following Jesus for decades, then you'll need something probably more advanced. And you may need a change to break out of stagnation or numbness. And even when we're in similar seasons of life, our rules will look different because we are very different. So you need to remember your unique wiring and personality. Meaning if you connect 
with God easily in nature, then you might prioritize hikes. Or through art, you might make time for books and films and music. If time alone replenishes your soul, prioritize more solitude. If time amongst friends does the same, schedule more communal time. But remember, it's important for all of us to balance downstream practices with upstream practices, meaning we all have at least some spiritual disciplines that connect with our disposition in such a way that they come easy and they feel immediately rewarding based on your kind of personality. Others are really hard to do because of your personality, but they're still important, so you can't just skip them because they're, quote, not your thing. So I, for example, I love this practice called imaginative prayer. I find it um, extremely rewarding, immediately so. Uh, but shocker, fasting is really hard. Uh, it's not as like, man, I'm stoked on this fasting coming up. Community is still very important for self-proclaimed introverts. And silence and solitude are still very important for those of us who prefer to be around people all the time. Worship is crucial, even if you feel funny singing. And reading the Bible is crucial, even if you're not, quote unquote, a book person. You all need balance. We all need that balance of upstream disciplines, the ones that come uh, uh, kind of against our personality but are still very important for our formation, and downstream disciplines, the ones that go right along with the stuff we already want to do in the first place. And you'll be free to adapt the rhythm when life demands it. Adaptation is not throwing out the rule. What I mean is that if you have a nice cushy morning rhythm going, and then something like a work schedule change or having a new kid throws it off. That doesn't mean you just give up on the rhythm. It means that now you need to get up earlier or now you need to move things so that that can go in another place. Because the rhythms consistently practiced are the things that begin to shape you. One thing I found in living into the rule that I'd written was that with more attention to certain prayer disciplines, my mind naturally gravitated to prayer in the trivial moments of the day, meaning the more time that I made for prayer in my carved out space of the morning and in the afternoon, the more that my mind went back to prayer at line in the grocery store or after I drove my kids to school and was alone in my car in the quiet. And I didn't push the urge to pray down and say, sorry, not the scheduled time, read the, you know, um, it means that you're expanding in your ability to accommodate these spiritual rhythms, and they can learn and grow and adapt as you learn and grow and adapt. A good rule is structured, absolutely, but it allows for spontaneity. It allows for revision as you mature. It is an ever-evolving work in progress as life changes and as we grow and mature. And again, the rule is a means to an end. The end is not to follow the rule. The end is to become someone who spends more time with Jesus and who is being changed by the time they spend with Jesus. There's no one design for a rule of life, but ordinarily the categories unfold something like this, and these are the ones we'll be using throughout the series. Presence, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and gospel. So presence includes practices intended to put us in God's presence, things like morning prayer, scripture reading, uh, worship music, fasting, Lectio Divina, silence and solitude, those kinds of things. The mind includes practices aimed at uh, shaping the way we think 
again, like scripture, but also spiritual reading and study or church on Sunday morning or sermon podcasts or practicing gratitude around the family table or a digital rule of life, carving out how you will and won't monitor your own screen time, a daily limit on device use, that kind of thing. The body is obviously about things like sleep and regular exercise and a healthy diet, even things like doctor and dentist visits. Um, Relationships and sexuality might include something like a weekly phone call or a hangout with a close friend to keep that um, relationship close, a weekly meal with your Van City community, coming to church on Sunday like you are now. Uh, for married couples, it'll include things like a regular date night or prioritizing healthy, consistent sexual connection. For families, it'll be sitting down to dinner together, preferably every night, at least something like five nights a week, a daily quality time, uh, prayer over your kids before bed, annual vacations together as a family, um, work and rest are about things like a fixed hour schedule, you know, uh, keeping up a routine and rhythm for when you work, dedicated time to a supplemental project, something that's been on your heart and mind for a while, carving out space to do that, getting the right amount of sleep, a weekly nothing night, uh, a regular nothing day, meaning a day or a night when your only obligation is to chill. And money includes things like tithing or making and sticking with a budget, practicing simplicity, a generosity fund, sponsoring a child through something like compassion or world vision. And then gospel is about things like inviting a friend to church or hosting dinners or hosting neighbors for dinner or raising your kids to know and follow Jesus or getting to know your coworkers or serving the poor through volunteering. Presence, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and gospel. And each one of these categories has rhythms, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual rhythms. So for example, um, I pray and read scripture daily, but I practice silence and solitude on the final Thursday of each month. And I'm not an organized person by nature, but I live with the world's most organized person, so it worked out for me just fine. But organized or chaotic, We all already live by rhythms either way, and we all need rhythms to follow Jesus. So it seems to me that spiritual disciplines without a rule of life is a bit like learning the piano with no piano lessons. Can one learn the piano simply toying with it when the mood hits and coming and going and learning something here and there? Probably, but it'll most likely be kind of clumsy and inefficient. It'll take you longer than it should, and you probably won't master the piano, quite frankly. But what if you implement lessons into the rhythm and calendar of your life? What if you um, say to yourself, on these days of the week, I will spend this many hours with a teacher. I will study alone on these nights and at these times, and I will structure my time to accommodate these things. You see where I'm going with this, obviously. A rule of life is an attempt to rearrange our days and years so that we actually experience a deep sense of of life with God. Now, the idea is that by the end of this series, we hope that you don't have to, but the invitation is that you will have a brand new or a newly updated rule of life, and we will invite each of you that call Van City home to add to it this church-wide rule of life. It's quite simply the thing that we've been saying from the very beginning, the thing you learn in basics if you show up from day one, come to church on Sunday, be in a Van City community, serve and give. Now, to end tonight, I want to read over you from the prologue to St. Benedict's rule from the 6th century. He wrote, In drawing up its regulations for a rule of life, 
we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. The good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and to safeguard love. Do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset, but as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love. About 12 years ago, my wife and I lived in this old house in Northeast Portland, and every morning I would wake up early to spend time with God. I'd learned to keep my alarm clock across the room at that time, and the few, I'm sure you guys know, there's a few steps that it took to get to it was enough to wake me up and keep me from, you know, reflexively hitting the snooze button. Once I unlocked that, I thought I was really onto something. So I'd get up and I'd make a French press and sit on the couch, and every single morning I'd read from a Bible reading plan. And I prayed through a schedule of my own design. On Monday, I pray for my family. On Tuesday, I pray for my church and so on. And on Fridays, I would practice about an hour of imaginative prayer. And all of it, all of it fit within this wonderfully cozy niche that I had carved out in the routine of my life over a set of years. And then we had a kid. And that niche was suddenly occupied by something else. And I didn't see that coming. I don't know anything. So I was, of course, in love with our newborn, but I was grieving, honestly, this loss of time that I had enjoyed for years. And the more I tried to force it to work the way I designed it, the more it wouldn't work the way it was designed to work. And then a distance yawned open between me and God. Not like a spiritual crisis or anything, but I felt as if I wasn't as close. Why wouldn't I? We went from quality time every single morning at length to virtually no time because that was where I put all of my spiritual discipline. Stolen moments throughout a scattered day at best was all I had left. And I realized that though my life had grown and unfolded into spaces that I once kept for myself, there were still 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. So I got up earlier and I turned down the occasional late night outing so that I could do it. And the unpredictability of life continued and continues to needle its, you know, chaotic tendrils into the rhythms that populate my rule of life, but there's still 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. Things just have to change. You have to move and adapt. God is always there waiting. I can stand up here every single Sunday unpacking the Bible line by line. Can can remind us week after week why generosity is so crucial for our church and for our formation. And Levi can stand up here and ask you to lift your voices and hands to God in worship. But if you aren't being changed by the incredible warmth, the fire of God's presence, his nearness, then a sermon is just information. And generosity is optional at best and solicitation at worst. And worship is little more than songs and slides. Being with Jesus is the first step in how we change. And spiritual rhythms are how we can be with him. I don't need or even want a church full of list makers and rule followers. I want us to experience the freedom of God's love for us made manifest in our drawing near to him as he draws near to us. I want for all of us life and life to the fullest. And I wonder why we think that lists and schedules feel dry and sterile. Is a, is a date night on the calendar with your husband or wife or best friend a forced ritual? Or is it how that we draw lines in the sand of our lives to make space for what really matters most? Is that how we say to someone else, I will prioritize you because your presence in my life matters to me? 
And it shocks me. It shocks me in my own life and my own story when we prioritize other people more than we prioritize God, and then we get mad at God for not coming near to us when we have refused to come near to him. And I think of St. Benedict's words, it is bound to be narrow at the outset. What a comfort. But as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of his love. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to follow Jesus well. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.